Welcome to Building and Protecting Your Business Worth podcast. This podcast is about sharing strategies and ideas to help business owners build, protect, and transition their businesses for the future while creating more balance in their life. Your host is Thomas J. Perrone, CLUCIC, and president of the New England Consulting Group of Guilford Incorporated, consulting business owners for over 50 years. Welcome to Building and Protecting Your Business Worth. Hi, I'm Tom Perrone, and I'm your host. And this podcast is all about learning strategies to build your business, to create greater profit, but to create also an abundance of leisure time so you can enjoy what you're building. Today, we have a wonderful guest, and I would like to introduce to you Paul Hood, welcome to Building and Protecting Your Business Worth podcast. Paul, thank you for giving us time today. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Well, many of you will know who Paul is. Uh, He has saved my butt more than many times over the last number of years of his writings. And I'm going to introduce the the group to you at this point, uh, uh, Paul, but we'll talk more about your past. But Paul Hood, Jr., J.D., L.L.M., C.F.R.E., F.C.E.P., and an experienced and thoughtful estate planner. He has considerable experience working with family business continuity planning, a native of Louisiana, and a double L.S.U. Tiger. After obtaining his law degrees in 1986 and 88, Paul settled down to practice tax and estate planning law in the New Orleans area. How do you, how you like the way I said that, Paul? New Orleans, huh? Uh, Actually, there's no hardy in no, it's no, New Orleans. New Orleans. Paul has spent over 30 years specializing in taxes and estate planning. He has taught at the University of New Orleans, Northeastern University, University of Toledo, College of Law, and Ohio Northern University. Pettit College of Law. The proud father of two Eagle Scouts and LSU Tigers, Paul has authored and co-authored seven books and over 500 professional articles on estate and tax planning and business valuation. And maybe maybe a lot of people don't know this, Paul was a, is and was a p- pitching coach. And if you read Paul's articles, uh, he covers things no one ever thinks about and goes into them. And like a good pitching coach, he sees everything where many of us don't see. Paul's, it's almost like Paul sees stuff we can't see. So, Paul, it's an honor to speak to you today. Oh, you're too kind. Well, um, I've, uh, of course, I've told you many times how I've enjoyed Tools and Techniques of Estate Planning by Ewan Limburg. And I've enjoyed your two buy and sell agreement books. The latest one I think is fabulous because I get to share it with business owners uh, because they understand it. It's written that way. And I encourage uh, anybody who's a professional planner that they need to go out and get Paul's book. Uh, this is the latest book. Uh, it's buy and sell agreements. Uh, Paul, there's a full title to that. Yeah, the buy-sell buy, agreements, the last will and testament that's for right. your business. That's right. It's a, it's a great book. Um, Paul, tell us a little bit more about yourself and your practice over the years. Sure. 
I usually describe myself in two ways. The first is I'm a recovering tax lawyer and practiced tax and estate planning law in Louisiana for about 20 years. But I also describe myself as a purposeful estate planner. And what I mean by that is I, I'm a firm believer that estate planning is divided into two pieces that have to go together. There are the bricks of estate planning, which are things like your documents, your wills, trusts, your entities, partnerships, LLCs, foundations. But bricks stacked together without any mortar to secure them are usually easily toppled with the lightest amount of stress. And the mortar of estate planning, in my opinion, the qualitative side, the soft side, the human, I usually call it the human side, is far more important. And this is the, the areas of a communication and collaboration. And unfortunately, too many estate planners focus on the bricks and forget the mortar. And I believe that the goal of estate planning is what I call the good estate planning result. And obviously, like any good term, needs a definition. And for me, the good estate planning result has the following elements. First, the, the client or testator or, or the, the trust set lore gets the property to the people that they want the property to go to. At the time, they want them to get it. Taxes are minimized to the lowest acceptable amount. And that's where most people stop. But I believe there's one more element, and I think this is the most important element. Relationships among the survivors are not harmed. Estate plans have um, therapeutic and, and anti-therapeutic effects. And unfortunately, perfectly drafted and implemented estate plans tear families apart every day in this country. And it's because people didn't pay enough attention to the, to the soft side. And that's one of the reasons why the good estate planning result is so elusive for so many. So that's really how I describe myself. It's kind of a long-winded explanation. I, I, I am from the South, so I, I am a storyteller. You, you are, and you're a good storyteller. And I know we want to talk about buy and sell mistakes today, but I have two other questions on the same uh, route that we've just talked, Paul. Sure. You, you, you use the term parade of horribles. Mm -hmm. Can you explain that? Sure. The parade of horribles is a term I actually got when I was in law school 
from uh, the former chancellor of the LSU Law School, William D. Hawkland, who taught me Article 9 sales under the UCC. You can fit what I know about Article 9 sales in a thimble today because I never used it. But I did remember Parade of Horribles. And, the, and by Parade of Horribles, what I mean is, is when people immediately envision the worst. They hear something and they immediately think the worst possible scenario. And it happens a lot in estate planning, unfortunately. And it usually happens when people when there hasn't been intergenerational communication between the givers and receivers in an estate plan. People prepare an estate plan and they set the rules, but they don't bother telling their loved ones why they set the rules the way they did. And when people don't hear that, they immediately think the worst. I know that I have had very, very successful grown men break down and cry in my office because their parents left them less in their estate plans than they left their siblings. And in each of these, and I'm thinking of three different situations, highly successful people worth tens of millions of dollars. But it wasn't about the money. It was about that emotional scorecard. It was the love scorecard. They thought that their parents, by giving them less, meant they loved them less. And I, and, and I used to tell people, I, I, I never forget one day I was on an airplane and somebody sat next to me and asked me what I did for a living. And I was knee deep in an estate squabble. And I said, I practice psychotherapy without a license. <laughs> <laughs> because there's a lot of truth to that. Yeah, absolutely. I, I learned, I wrote an article in the ACTEC journal back in 2002 about the initial client interview. And the name of the article is from the school of hard knocks. Most of what I learned about, because I was trained in the business school, I never took a psychology course. I had to learn on the fly and I made plenty of mistakes. Hence my education in the school of hard knocks. And I believe that if you, and I had to, it took me a while to convince these guys. And I did it in different ways for each of the three, but they needed to consider the, just the possibility that even though their parents didn't tell them why they left them less in each case, the client, my client was worth a multiple and it was a high multiple in, in every one of these situations of what their parents died with. And I asked them to be open to the possibility 
that their siblings might have needed more. Because obviously these guys were fine if their parents didn't leave them a dime. So that's what I mean by the parade of horribles. And, you know, the more I think about it, it, I've seen over my 51 years of career in in planning, uh, attorneys and other professionals treat estate planning like they were fixing an engine in the car. There's no emotion. It's almost like step A through B. And, you know, you have a great article on your website, 32 Core Benefits, at least rather, that I read and I want to share with my friends because the truth of the matter is what you say concerning the parade of horribles is absolutely correct. And I don't think enough emotion and communication goes into this process, what we call estate planning. And what would be, uh, let's talk about path of most most resistance. I've never heard that put that way. So let's talk about that, Paul, and then we'll get on to the buy and sell. Sure. The path of most resistance, you're referring to a graphic that I had, well, for a long time, it was my own drawing, which wasn't a very good one, um, given my limited computer skills. But I eventually farmed it out to a professional. And it's basically the pathway why getting to the good estate planning result is so is so hard and so elusive. And the graphic, it's a pretty simple graphic. There, there are a number of players in what I call the estate planning play. It's not just the client, who's obviously the the star, but you've got other people. You've got their loved ones. You've got their professional advisors. And every person in the play brings their personal experiences and biases and what I often just refer to colloquially as baggage into the estate planning play of the client. And at the top of the graphic above the, the, the thick line that runs in both that can go either way are, are a list of factors that all the players in the play share. And it's things like view, you know, uh, past experience with inheritances and trusts, um, relationship issues, marital successes and failures. But below the double line, you have the factors that are unique to each player in the play. And I start with the client. Many people go through estate planning with their spouses. And I didn't set up because trying to keep the graphic simple, estate planning becomes far more complicated when you take on a double client, like a husband and wife. 
even a, even in an apparent copacetic marriage. So I kept it simple. And below the line has factors that are unique to the client. Moving to your right, I've got positions for two professional advisors. Now, most clients, wealthy clients, have more than two. But I illustrate two to demonstrate the tension that's caused by having more than one. Yes. Because those people have to work together. And I'm sure you have, and I, I certainly have, seen estate plans derailed, uh, put off, because the advisors couldn't work together or didn't work together well or, or were working against each other. And then finally, to your far right, is the receivers. And not only the receivers, but the loved ones, because not everybody that thinks they're going to get something actually gets something. Yeah. And they have unique factors. In estate planning, if it's not done right, Clients can actually go backward. And that's why the line has an arrow in both directions. Yes. I, I have the graph in front of me and I see it and you're right. And the class and, and I'll give you a classic example of that happens all the time. You've got a client is in the office to do some estate planning and they're accompanied by a child who's obviously a potential inheritor. Talk comes to death and the child's, the child is resistant because the broaching the possibility that their parent is going to die is simply too painful, emotionally painful for them. So they start saying things like, oh, daddy, that's a long way off. There's no reason. This is maudlin. This is sick. I don't want to talk about this. And quite often, a parent will honor their child by not talking about it. When it's something that they need to talk about and need to get, need to get done. So that's just one example of how this, uh, how this can work. Well, well, to me, it, why I bring it up is that, again, like I said before, I've seen multiple times estate planning being treated like a, a fine tuning of an, an engine with no emotion. And you're willing to go into those very, very uncomfortable areas, but they need to be discussed. They need to be, you need to work with these people. And a lot of practitioners haven't done it. And, uh, I bring that up only because I know that's the type of planner you are. Um, so again, thanks for explaining that to me. I do appreciate it. So Paul, let's move on to buy and sells. One of my favorite topics. All right. Well, hold on. Let me, let me make one more point about, about the emotional or psychological side. And I, and I just want to highlight, and this is a blog that I posted 
It's on my website, paulhoodservices.com, under the tab blog. And I wrote a blog on on June 29th, really focused toward estate planners. And it's called The Human Side of Estate Planning, Come On In, The Water's Fine. And I really encourage estate planners to leave the quantitative side of estate planning and join me on the qualitative or soft or human side. And I'll read the last two sentences of the blog. I promise you that you'll become a much better estate planner. Your clients will get significantly better estate plans. Fewer clients will resist signing the documents you suggest that they sign, and you'll be a much more trusted and valued advisor. It's a win-win across the board and beats the proverbial crap out of the Jenny Craig estate plan, which I described earlier in the blog. So that's something worth reading. Definitely, definitely worth reading. Um, thank you, Paul. Um, and, and your blog, by the way, is fantastic. You have some great articles up there. And uh, I encourage listeners <laughs> to uh, go up to Paul's website. And I'll, I'll post all of this in the show notes so you can get uh, all the information of contacting Paul and going to his website. <clears throat> Excuse me. So, Paul, let's move on. All right. Let's move on to buy and sell agreements. And mistakes. I think that's what we want to talk about today, right? Yeah, I don't know how much time we have left to talk well, about it. But... Well, we got time. You got... Okay, well, <laughs> uh, uh, I got all the time in the world, so yeah. you tell me when to stop. Yeah, we got a lot of time. We can just go right into it. All right. Um, I In the book, and, and the book was written for the layman. for the regular business owner. But I wrote the book with a professional advisor in mind. And in fact, one of the chapters in the book, getting to the table of contents here, chapter 13 is working with professional advisors. And I tell people how to evaluate a professional, a professional advisor in the buy-sell world. But I have a chapter expressly devoted to the professional advisor, chapter 14. The book is not a self-help, do-it-yourself book. The buy-sell agreement is too difficult a contract to try to do it yourself. It, on the level of complexity, if a will is a five, a buy-sell agreement is a 10. In my opinion, it's one of the most difficult and challenging agreements in the law to draft. And for that, and I think for that reason, in my professional experience of having either drafted or reviewed or edited 
probably a thousand buy sell agreements. There probably aren't five lawyers in the country who've seen more buy sell agreements than I have. In my opinion, about 90% of them have sufficient deficiencies. 90%. Wow. It's a hard contract to draft, right? Um, but there's a in chap there's a chapter in the book that goes through what I call the top 21 mistakes. And I'm gonna cover a few of those. One of the most important ones is a failure to coordinate. Buy-sell agreements can't be treated in a vacuum. If an entity is involved, and usually people own their businesses in some entity, a corporation, LLC, a partnership, whatever, there are other documents that need to be reviewed. In fact, in my opinion, it's malpractice to not coordinate a buy-sell agreement with the entity documents but not just the entity organizational documents like articles of incorporation, bylaws, operating agreements, but loan agreements, security agreements with lenders and financial institutions, franchise agreements, some leases have significant impacts or potential impacts on buy-sell agreements. Therefore, it's imperative that you that you coordinate the provisions of a buy-sell agreement with the other documents that are legally binding on the entity. So, for an example, let's say uh, an entity document is saying one thing about stock transfer, but your buy and sell is saying another thing. Uh, there you have the conflict, correct? Yeah. In fact, the example I was going to give, and I and I, I'll go ahead and give it now. This was a I was consulting for one of the largest wineries in the world, family-owned business, and they had a buy-sell agreement. That was a grandfathered buy-sell agreement. What I mean by that is it was entered into before October 9th, 1990, which means that it was not subject to Chapter 14 of the Internal Revenue Code. But about 15 or 16 years later, they were looking because the family was changing, they were looking at making some changes. And I reviewed their bylaws. They were a corporation. And their bylaws conflicted with their buy-sell agreement. And this is a company that had in-house counsel and obviously excellent outside counsel but nobody had bothered to look at the bylaws. And it was a significant conflict between the bylaws 
and the buy-sell agreement. Now, the laws of some states say that if there's a conflict between the bylaws or, or in some cases, the articles of incorporation, and there aren't, most buy-sell language is not in the public document, like the articles of organization or partnership or incorporation. But if, if there's a conflict, the laws of many states say the corporate document governs over the buy-sell agreement. Whereas that conflicts with the intent of many people that they thought their buy-sell agreement would govern. So failure to coordinate is, is a big problem. And it's, it's a problem that I saw with too great a frequency. And it's, and it's an unnecessary mistake, in my opinion. You simply request the documents and you don't draft a new buy-sell agreement until you get those documents and get a chance to review them. So that's fair to coordinate. You know, as you're speaking about this, um, gee, I recall a number of times over the years where uh, the attorney would just start talking about the buy and sell agreement and uh, I don't ever remember him pulling up the other documents of the corporation. And I, as I'm thinking about this, it happens very regularly with a lot of, I know. yeah. Yeah. And, and you're, you know, you make, this makes so much sense to coordinate everything. And especially when you say uh, the state law governs um, there's a lot at risk here because you have individuals that have, talked intimately about what they want to do with stock or what they can't do, but then it's superseded by the articles of organization or whatever it might be. So it's wiped out. Exactly. And that's why I have said emphatically that failure to review those documents when drafting a buy-sell agreement is malpractice per se. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting, and I bet you that's such a common mistake, a common, uh, a common occurrence, huh? Well, I mean, like I said, the example I gave you. I mean, we're not, we weren't talking about a penny ante, uh, mom and pop restaurant. We're talking about one of the top ten wineries in the world, yeah. worth several hundred million dollars. And the problem with buy-sell agreements is that if something happens, a triggering event particularly, once people uh, are not in the same boat, the triggering event happened, and then you got the people that it happened to and the people that it benefits or happened for, People are going to use the advantages that they have. And if the document gives them an advantage, they're going to hold them to the document. Yeah, 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 exactly. Another problem 
that I, I routinely run into is what I call improper selection of the type of buy-sell agreements. You got three different types of buy, and in my opinion, you really have one type of buy-sell agreement, but I'm going to introduce all three. The first is a redemption agreement where the entity is the one buying the interest on the occurrence of a triggering event. Second is the cross purchase where the other owners or other people buy the interest on the occurrence of a triggering event. And then you have the third type and the type that I used uh, exclusively called the hybrid. Because the hybrid is a mix of the cross purchase and the redemption. There are some triggering events where the buyer should be the entity. But there are other triggering events that you may want to include where the best buyers would be the, in, the individuals or the other owners. So I'm a big believer in the hybrid agreement. Um, too often people end up with the wrong type because their lawyer gets a specimen document often from an insurance company and it's a buy-sell agreement and the insurance company's document has it as a redemption funded with insurance and and people end up with these, even though in many of these situations, the insurance is not actually owned by the entity. It's owned by the individual owners. And obviously there, there's a mismatch because the people who end up with the money are not the people who are obligated to buy the interest on the occurrence of the triggering event. Right. Yeah. Um, that's how it happens most of the time. Uh, a lot of times these improper selection events manifest themselves. Probably one of the more common situations is when you have a child owner who predeceases a parent who is a, an owner too. Obviously, it's always usually a surprise when a child predeceases a parent, and it's usually regarded as an out-of-order event, and too often it creates havoc in the buy-sell agreement. Another problem is improper selection of triggering events. I have, in fact, it's you just attended my buy-sell boot camp. Yeah. And part of the materials from that boot camp are, is a tool that I developed over 20 years ago for me called the buy-sell options grid. <clears throat> it's a pretty simple document it's got two axes 
the vertical axis are a list, and it's a significant list of potential triggering events. It's not comprehensive, I mean, it's not exhaustive. You come up with more triggering events if you want to, but it's probably got 20, 25 on there. And that's more than most people need. In fact, I'd say that most buy-sell agreements only, only deal with five to seven triggering events at most. But it's got other things for you to think about. The horizontal axis is potential responses to those triggering events. And the beauty of the grid is that it lays out on one page and that makes it easy for the client to focus on. And the grid makes it possible to select on a triggering event by triggering event basis. What response is best for that triggering event? Because you can't use, well, you, you could, but you shouldn't have the same response to every triggering event in the agreement. So it allows for customization of the buy-sell agreement on a triggering event by triggering event basis. One of the classic mistakes that people make Suppose, Tom, you and I are going to be partners in an entity that's going to own rental real estate, and we're not going to actively manage it or play an active role in it. We're pretty much just investors. Why should any buy-sell agreement between us in such an entity have a disability buy-sell trigger. Correct, yeah. But you'd be surprised. In fact, I can give you the citation to a court case where in an investment entity, a, an investor who happened to be a dentist was declared disabled as a dentist and forced to sell his interest in the investment entity against his will because of the existence of a disability trigger. Because that was one of the men mandates in the trigger that you had to sell under yep. those circumstances. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Paul, those triggers are, let's talk about that a little bit. I want to dive into, that's the, the area that I've seen over the years in majority of time, very inflexible by the draftman of the, because they treated everything the same, a divorce, a bankruptcy, where, you know, in your book, that's the one thing about uh, picking up your book and reading it. It gives you this knowledge of how things should be done the right way where you could have triggering events that have different uh, results as you were talking about. Um, 
that disability is a perfect example. And yeah. I, I don't see that happening a lot, to tell you the truth. Yeah, uh, it, it, it happens with frightening frequency. And people, when we talk about triggering events, Paul, talk, um, for the audience purposes, we, we use this lingo, but let's go through the major triggering events that you see that you like to have in your documents. Okay. Um, I think most buy-sell agreements should deal with death. In fact, it'd be a rare document a rare buy-sell agreement. I, mean, I can come up with an example, but it would be unusual. So death, I think that for active businesses where your owners are employees, disability should be considered. And disability is a tough triggering event because death for all its um, lack of uh, uh, benefit is at least certain. (laughs) Disability is not. No. And you, you run into situations where people who are disabled fight the disability determination. And there are ways that I've drafted for to handle that. You've got some people who try to be disabled when possibly they're not. And it's all because disability is subjective. So it's a t- that's a that that's one that has to be well drafted. And, and let's stop on that for a moment, Paul. Mm-hmm. In the in the if you look in any manual, they'll talk about the definition of disability is really related to how the insurance company's disability is in that contract. Um, that's to me that seems kind of limited, but I guess is that is that the norm that that you would look at how the insurance company if there's a disability policy funding that. Would that be the the definition you would use, or how do you get to the final definition? Well, obviously, there's two basic ways you can define disability. The first is what I call social security disability, which is complete and total disability. Mm -hmm. You are incapable of holding down any meaningful employment. Very first case I ever handled it, uh, Tom, as a lawyer, was a Social Security disability case. I was a brand new lawyer in a firm, and we had a contract to provide services to people who participated in a plan, a prepaid legal services plan. So I ended up representing a 53-year-old marble layer with an eighth-grade education who was in, at 
a bad accident, fell down some stairs carrying some marble. And during his recovery, he ended up having a triple bypass heart surgery. And in the end, he had a mountain of medical complications. And Social Security had turned him down for disability four times. So he came and used his plan. And I, 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 thankfully, I'd been a law clerk for a judge. When we got to administrative hearing, the administrative law judge had been on the bench for about 35 years. And my client was a very humble country guy and the judge asked every question in the hearing and I could tell that he was establishing disability point by point and my client was as honest a guy as you could have when the judge was finished he turned to me he said, counselor, do you have anything to add? And at that point, my, my best three words and the smartest three words I could say was, no, your honor. <laughs> and of course we won and he got his back disability. So that's social security disability. Then you've got own occupation disability, which insurance companies use in their commercial disability policies. And obviously, there are two types of disability insurance. One is individual disability, and the second is buy-sell disability. The beauty of having of using insurance company definitions is if the insurance company, if an insurance company is involved, you can make them the boogeyman and them the determiner of when a owner is disabled. Yeah. Yeah. Because otherwise the fight is who determines disability? Is it the company? You know, how, how is somebody determined disabled? Because as I said, it's not an easy determination. And, and, and I bet you, Paul, over the years, you've seen the disability uh, part of the triggering event in there, but without funding, I bet. Of course. Yeah. 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 Uh, divorce should be covered. But too often it's poorly covered. In my opinion, it should always give the owner spouse the superior rights they should always have a right to acquire whatever because in a divorce you know quite often you know equitable distribution is is pretty common these days and even if the the non-owner spouse ends up with an interest in the entity the buy-sell agreement should give the owner spouse the right, the prior right to buy that interest. And too often it, the buy-sell doesn't. 
it gives that right to all of the owners. And, and you spend a lot of time on that in your book, Paul, which was new to me when I first read your first buy and sell, where you want the spouses to be witnesses to the signing of that buy and sell agreement. Oh, I wouldn't do, I, I, I didn't permit. Now you got to remember, I was practicing in a community property state. But even in situations where my clients own their interests as separate property, I mandated, I, in fact, would not go forward unless the client, and, and I had some, cl some clients walk out and fire me over that. And, and, and tell us why, Paul, why was that so important for you to have that done that, that way? Because if what what people often want to do is if there's they don't want their spouse to know about it. And that's a mistake if you split. Because if the spouse doesn't know about it and isn't a party to it, then it's not applicable to them. And it's easy for the court to set the agreement aside and create exceptions. And you don't want that. Mm -hmm. You don't want that at all. I have had, I haven't represented an individual client, Tom, since 2005. In the 16 years since then, I've had three clients find me and reach out and thank me for forcing them to make their spouses parties to the buy-sell agreement. Because in each case, the non-owner spouse and the spouse, the owner spouse split, and the interest in the entity became an issue in the divorce. I want that non-owner spouse to be governed by the buy-sell agreement under all circumstances. And the only way to guarantee that is by having them be a party. Yeah. 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 You are probably the only person that I've read, ever read about buy and sell that hammered that part home with detail. Well, each one of these guys pushed back on me on that. And I just, I, I have, like I said, it, it's, it's only three, but I suspect that it's many more than that. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So you got divorce, disability, death as the trigger. Yeah. The, and, and um, Sometimes insolvency, uh, bankruptcy, um, in professional entities, loss of license is not unusual. How about termination? Uh, in well, obviously, yeah, termination of employment for cause or for no cause. And, and I tended in my drafting... Because I, I'm, 
I, I'm a simple guy and I need to keep things simple. I divided the world of triggering events into two, into two groups, what I call good guy events and bad guy events. Okay. <laughs> and by good guy events is the owner who's, interests have been triggered for sale was not at fault. And usually those events include death, termination of employment without cause. Uh, if they have a retirement trigger, disability. Uh, and they usually, the good guy triggering events, the owner has the better end of the rights in the agreement. Contrast that with the bad guy events, termination of employment for cause, um, competing with the entity, uh, maybe even bankruptcy. In that instance, the entity or the other owners have the better end of the rights in the agreement. When you went through that in the book, it was very interesting. Again, you went into detail that many other books don't go into. And another reason why owners of businesses should be reading this book even as they're preparing for a buy and sell agreement um, a lot of really good stuff in here that, that nobody else is touching. Um, <clears throat> I, I told Paul earlier that the reason why he was a good pitching coach is that he looks at every detail and he, he does the same thing with his books. Paul, we've gotten up to the hour of 50 minutes, so I'm about to close down on you. Um, but I have to tell you, uh, again, I'm a 51-year-old career or 50-year career guy you have uh, saved our butts many times. You've been one of our leading educators in reading really good quality technical stuff. And we really want to thank you for that. And I want to tell the audience that if you are a planner or you're a business owner, you have to get Paul's new book and read this. It's, it's probably the most important thing you can do for the transition and future of your business. Paul, anything else you'd like to add before we sign off? Well, other than to, other than to say thank you, I've enjoyed spending this time with you and your and your listeners. Um, last thing I'll tell you is the best advice I can give somebody who has a buy sell agreement is to conduct what I call a fire drill. Make believe, pretend, go back to your child days and make believe the triggering event occurs pull your agreement out and walk it all the way through from what happens on the occurrence of the triggering event has the interest that's going to be transferred to be valued who values it when can it be paid does it have to be in cash does it can it be in a note what are the terms of the note? Can the note have security? March it all the way through. And what you're going to find 
at least in my experience, in 90% of the cases, is that one of two things is going to have happened. Someone will have been screwed or there is a significant ambiguity in either one of the triggering terms or just as often in the procedure in the agreement that's going to create a ambiguity that is going to create a problem. That, that simple fire drill can save your rear end. You know, I have to just say one more thing about that. You had that in the class the other day, last week, two weeks ago. And I suggested to a client to run his fire drill. And he called me the next day and he says, I have no fire drill <laughs> to run because I realized I don't have a buy and sell agreement, but it made him start to really think about what's going to happen. So it's a very interesting, it's a great concept though. Uh, and a great suggestion. So, so Paul, thank you so much. I can't thank you enough. And, um, Best of luck. We'll do another snippet on some other parts of this in the future. Anytime be my pleasure. Thanks, everyone. Thank you, Paul. Well, I want to thank everybody for tuning in and listening. It was a good show today. And uh, if you would help us out by subscribing, click a like. Uh, if you have any ideas or thoughts that you would like to share with us, please email me at tperone, that's P-E-R-R-O-N-E, at N-E-C-G-G-I-N-C dot com. And if you are a business owner or you know business owners that would like to participate on our show, certainly let me know. We certainly welcome everyone who is a business owner to help people out there that are running businesses with great ideas and strategies to make them successful. So again, thanks for tuning in. I certainly appreciate it. Thank you for tuning in. Whenever you're ready to grow and protect your business while creating more balance in your life, here are three steps you can take. One, subscribe to this podcast. To request a free copy of Tom's newly published book, Unlocking Your Business DNA, email Tom at tperone at necgginc.com. Dot com And on the subject line, type DNA, include your mailing address. And thirdly, take the one-minute scorecard and report to see how efficient you are in your business planning. Email tperone at necgginc.com and request scorecard. For additional information, click the show notes.